You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. Today's topic is the 2001 film, Black Hawk Down. So this film tells the true story of the 1993 um, mission in Mogadishu. Mm-hmm. This uh, gives the ba- the background of the movie. Tells this was um, during the Somalian civil war. There was a lot of factions, and the main guy that um, becomes the enemy is Mohammed Farah Adid. Mm-hmm. And there was eventually a UN personnel that's trying to do a peacekeeping mission, but then yeah. they reach out to the U.S. and uh, President Clinton, who was president at the time, um, sent task force rangers to there to try to straighten everything out and there is now a mission to get uh muhammad farah adid and um they get intel and have to go into this town of mogadishu yep to get them and they and we follow the thing about this movie that it's a huge massive cast there's a lot of people a lot of just almost everybody is in this movie almost yes and they and it's a very complicated operation too and uh, I, I, I realized that um, um, they put – this is Ridley Scott, right? Yes. Um, it looks like he put a lot of effort in into making sure that he included as many people as actually were in the operation and were discussed in the book of the same name. Um, and so you end up – you do. You end up with a, a pretty large cast. And honestly, I think it, it might take two viewings – to uh, keep everybody straight. Yes, this was the sec. I saw this once, uh, almost ten years ago. One of the reasons why I chose this is like you know I haven't seen this movie in a long time, and I like to watch it again. Yeah, and you realize like oh there's you know not only just like oh my god Tom Hardy Bane is in this movie and he's so young. Yeah, but it's, it, it's almost like, unrecognizable. Yeah, and there's just so many people, but it's just like who's this guy? Where is he to this? Right. And there's like not just all Rangers. There's um. There's a Delta Force. There's the uh, 160th Night Stalkers unit. So there's different groups. Oh, yeah. And they had to leave some people out. There were actually some Navy SEALs involved in this operation, yes. too. You don't see them at all. No. This is primarily uh, Army and Army Special Operations Forces uh, uh, film. Yeah. And and they get all the terminology right, too. I like that. You know, the, the, the groups that drop off of the helicopters are called chalks. And uh, that's that's correct. So he he did a good job, I think, uh, uh, ho- uh, hewing to the detail of the ca- the operation. And it, it kind of struck me uh, that because it was in a very dense urban environment, the operation necessarily had to be complex because of the uh, uh, rules of engagement that they were operating under, which, uh, as is typical for. United States forces uh, to do, do everything you can to avoid civilian casualties, and that becomes all the more difficult in that kind of a situation. And you really feel for these men 
who are either shot down or attempting to rescue the shoot downs as they go through these very densely populated cities, um, uh, trying as hard as they can to uh, adhere to those uh, ROE, just how difficult it is, especially when, when Adid's forces were also using women and children as human shields. And in some cases, and they show one case in the film, uh, you had a, a woman actually taking on the role of a combatant. She picked up a, 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 a Kalashnikov, I think it was. Yeah, AK-47. Yeah, and attempted to uh, uh, fire at the uh, soldiers. And you see this one character saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. But he's got a beat on her, and he knows he has to take her down if she Mm -hmm. goes to shoot, and he does. Quick little powerful scene, but that's the kind of uh, uh, real-world difficulty that uh, ROEs Mm -hmm. introduce. And you – because – what happened was they call it Black Hawk Down because two uh, helicopters were shot down um, during this mission. And in the beginning, they feel that, you know, that like one guy's preparing his canteen. They says, you don't need it. We're only going to be here an hour. They yeah. had a feeling that this wasn't going to be too long. This lasted over a day. And- oh, they actually did get the guys. Oh, they they did. did get them. Yeah, they did get them. So technically speaking, <laughs> the, the mission was a success. It, the mission was accomplished. But the uh, the question that arises, um, uh, one of the questions that arises in the film is, was it worth the cost? I think about uh, 19 U.S. servicemen were killed, and it's not mentioned in the film, but the Pakistanis lost some men, as well as uh, uh, forces from Malaysia, mm-hmm. who were, again, part of the U.N. peacekeeping force. And uh, it's kind of an interesting thing about this time period and through the 90s, the U.N., uh, took a fairly active role in putting peacekeeping forces in places like Somalia that were basically disintegrating and, and having no uh, uh, semblance of a, a civil government. Um, uh, uh, in, in this case, they're, they're warring clans. And it tends to be uh, uh, the way Somalia goes. And they're trying to, uh, at first... Uh, it's an interesting, and I'm sorry, I'm kind of breaking into no, the um, chronology here, but it's it's an interesting case in that uh, once the UN first went in, uh, it was basically to, to try to uh, secure the way for uh, uh, food and medical supplies to get to civilian populations that were uh, caught in the middle of the, this warfare, but there was a mission creep and eventually the UN wanted to not only do that, but make an attempt to, uh, uh, build a, uh, uh, government, build a state for this stateless area. And, uh, uh, they even wanted to, uh, do their best to found some sort of uh, representative democracy in this uh, melee. And you can see uh, it didn't work. And uh, to this day, Somalia is basically the yeah, same. The civil war is still going yes. on. Yes. Yeah. And uh, in the aftermath of this particular incident, um, you saw also the U.S. draw back from attempts at uh, state building uh, until... The attacks of 9-11 when we went into Afghanistan and Iraq and certainly made efforts in both of those countries to try to do something like that. 
with limited success. Uh, uh, I think Iraq's probably the better of the two now. Obviously, the uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan was complete, and uh, essentially nothing changed there. Um, but uh, it's interesting. This is 1993, and it's yes. kind of at the beginning of this this uh, uh, cycle of development and in, in, with uh, Western powers. They, they thought it was worth a try to state build in these areas where there actually have not been any functioning states for hundreds and hundreds of years. They had, uh, you know, uh, endemic clan warfare. Uh, as uh, I, I think I've said in, in earlier episodes, as was um, very common in human history up until fairly recently. Yeah, and you you bring that up about, I feel that this film, even though it was eight years before the events this film feels like a precursor to 9-11. I mean, this film came out in 2001, December. Yeah. And I think a lot, the film saw popularity after because of this is just a few months after 9-11. And it's, you, like you said, you can't help but feel the similarities between this and what would go down the road further with Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. And even, there, even in this um, event, there was... Later, later, the Somalian fighters were trained by Al Qaeda. Bin Laden did play a role in this, and he mocked the U.S. for being cowards later when they pulled out. And I, th- I think uh, the Clinton intelligence agency—I'm not 100 percent sure—but um, they had some sort of knowledge that Al Qaeda did train these guys. Yeah, um, and, and you know, he actually claimed credit as well. But you're right; they knew beforehand. Uh, in particular, uh, the the claim by uh, uh, Bin Laden was that the uh, one of the people that used an RPG to uh, shoot down the first Black Hawk was there out of two. We should say that two were shot down. Um, was tra- specifically trained in that in that uh, skill by Al Qaeda. Um, also, there there were claims made that there were other people involved. And this is this is not unusual. Al Qaeda had had people in Africa all through the nineties. Um, there were attacks on the Kobar Towers in Saudi Arabia, uh, nineteen ninety uh, nineteen ninety six, and then there were there was attacks on American embassies in Kenya and Tanzania in ninety eight. Uh, now. All we did in retaliation for those things was uh, we we bombed a safe haven or uh, sorry it was cruise missiles, cruise missiles of uh, what we believed was an Al Qaeda safe haven in Afghanistan, and then another one in Sudan, uh, which apparently was also a pharmaceutical um, uh, factory, and uh, that was it. It was an attempt to do very surgically precise strikes at the people that had uh, bombed the embassies, but uh, they 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 weren't terribly successful, and obviously they were only uh, two small targets and a, and a largely dispersed uh, group of Al Qaeda um, uh, bases, as it were. So, uh, Bin Laden read that as a tepid response. And it emboldened him to uh, uh, then, and this is in the late 90s, they started doing this, plan the uh, 
the planes operation, they called it, the, the 9-11 attacks. So this is early in this process. I mean, this is 93. This is also the same year the World Trade Center was bombed. Yes, right. And again, there was a tepid response to that in the eyes of Al-Qaeda. So they thought, hey, you know, we're going to try this again. Yep. And we read this among critics. They feel that this is the film of, in the later decades, is the defining film of the Bush era. And it, there was films that later on, even though they came even after you know, Bush well left office, that are like this. One of them which just came out was The Outpost, which is about a, one of the most famous battles in the Afghanistan War. There was Zero Dark Thirty, which won Best Picture. There was Lone Survivor about Marcus Luttrell in Afghanistan. Yeah. So you can see like this film, I think, influenced that because a lot of those films focus on that camaraderie. Yeah. And what is interesting about this movie is like they do, we talk about the complex politics and you know Muhammad Farid and all these different players in this battle. Even the soldiers aren't even a hundred percent sure all the complexities they had. The, the main Josh Hartnett character, mm-hmm. he's the one that's sort of more concerned and has yeah. somewhat of a grasp of what's going on. The other is saying, "Look, all that politics stuff goes out the window when a bullet's going by your head, and you just got your buddy there trying to get you out of this mess." Exactly right, and. Uh, that that also that's a very strong theme in this film. Um, it, it, it reflects the fact that the, the, the military is certainly not the uh, uh, policy making part of the U.S. government. They are, as it were, the executor, the executioner of foreign policy when it comes to having to use kinetics to carry it out. And uh, the guys will tell you, you know, look, you know, we have to keep our focus on our relatively small part of a very complex operation. We certainly don't have time to concern ourselves with the politics. And in fact, that is not our job. Our job is to go in and do the operation. And I think the film does a very good job of showing that, like some of these other films do too. Although it's interesting that Watching the complexity of this operation brought to mind older films. Uh, there's a film that had to do with Operation Market Garden. What was the uh, name of that? A Bridge thing? Too Far. A Bridge Too Far, uh, which in, in I, I noticed a parallel. That one shows the complexity of the um, command and control that was involved in that operation. And this film does a great job with this one, too. You have guys flying overhead, trying to give directions through these very dense urban setting every every possible route is as a roadblock so yes. like you can't go there give me another can't route do that and you know and part of that it, it's unavoidable given the setting that they're trying to um, uh, pull off this operation within uh, but uh, part of it also is is just the, uh, the the complexity of the operation for instance they they, they wanted to make sure they had that building surrounded by four different units, one on each corner of the building. They have to insert those guys to be able to do that. And then they're going to try and, 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 and drive a convoy in <laughs> through all of these streets. And, you know, just to make matters worse, this is a Adid controlled environment. So you, you don't know how many thousands of armed 
uh, militiamen you're going to have, and boy, you find and out. And they don't wear uniforms either, so it's not easy to spot the difference between a civilian and a soldier. Exactly right, and again, that, that gets back to the ROE. It's extremely difficult in that environment to do so, and it, it, it raises a question that also was, uh, I think, uh, brought up when you with Operation Market Garden. At, at some point, uh, did planners, did anybody uh, that was in the planning phases of both of these operations, did they say, hey, wait a minute, guys, this is all, it has too many moving parts. It's too complex. It, it makes it highly unlikely that we'll succeed. I don't know if anybody did, um, but I, I can imagine the, the, the people that are special operators in particular would say, look, that's our job. We're, we're supposed yeah. to be able to it, do these complex things. The main, like the head guy of this operation would probably be uh, Garrison, Commander yeah, Garrison. Or, but they yeah. don't necessarily portray him, I would say, as incompetent. No. There's nobody, like even the higher-ups, I don't think any of them no. are portrayed as competent. Even the guy that's consistently trying to give them different routes, he's doing the best they're, he can. They're doing the best they can, yeah. but uh, it raises that historical question. You know, the, these these people know the business, right? Um, did anybody raise any doubts about it? Um, and you're right. He's not portrayed as incompetent, but I think he felt tremendous guilt after the operation he occurred. He did resign He after. resigned. Uh, two days after Hadid was killed by yes. a rival clan. Um, so... To me, that shows there, there might have been some recognition of the difficulty of the operation. And I don't know what else they could have done, honestly. Um, Hadid was, I mean, it's a very interesting case because he was uh, compounding a humanitarian catastrophe. That's undoubtedly true. People were starving by the thousands because he was intercepting uh, UN supplied food, keeping it for himself or for just his clan, or trying to sell it on the market, uh, and you know he had, he had no concern for anybody essentially outside of his clan. So uh, there's that humanitarian kind of imperative to uh, intervene in cases like that. But uh, this film raises a great question: you know, at what cost do you do that, and how do you balance that humanitarian imperative? against the stewardship imperative you have for the forces that you are going to be inserting into that kind of a situation for an operation that is not, uh, I wouldn't say, it doesn't have a high probability of success, but it also is not clear uh, what kind of repercussions a success in getting those two people would actually have had. Would it have had that much of an impact on the political situation in Somalia? I think the answer is no. So then you have to then you have to ask, well, uh, uh, given that that's the case, uh, and, and given the large amount of lives that could be lost through starvation, um, and given the low probability of a successful turnout, should we insert our own personnel there? That's a big question. And I think it's raised by this film quite well. Again, this is the real world, and there's no easy answers because uh, 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 kind of going along with that stewardship imperative we have, uh, when you do that, especially in the 1990s, it's wonderful we have hindsight now, but when you do that 
in the 1990s with Osama bin Laden looking on after he had uh, done his uh, fair share of creating this chaos in Africa, uh, that sends messages to him. Uh, the United States is the weak horse. Now's our time to strike, right? So you have to keep that in mind as you're making these uh, complicated decisions as, as a, a leader. And again, I think it's fair to say that it, it, uh, it's easier for us now in 2021 with hindsight to say, you know, uh, you should have done it this way or you should have not gone in altogether, whatever. Um, but uh, similar sorts of situations uh, occur at every period in history. And we're having to consider these same kinds of questions here now, recently yeah. with the our removal of forces from Afghanistan, I think is a primary example. Um, are we opening up Afghanistan again to be a base for operations for uh, bad actors? It's a great question and uh, has to be asked. And uh, similar questions are asked on the larger scale with uh, larger powers. China, what do we do about China? Should we have been more active in uh, uh, expressing displeasure with the way they treated Hong Kong. What do we do about Taiwan? There are uh, in indicators they want to do uh, do something to take Taiwan back. And there's a in the post World War II environment. I feel like this issue has been brought up a lot and other things. I think you can make parallels between this. In Korea, some people say we should have gone farther in Korea and wiped the communists completely out of Korea, but people were worried, well, then we're going to start World War III with China if we yeah. go too far. Vietnam, the same thing with the issues with we should have, you know, we pulled out, the North Vietnamese took over, Saigon fell, yeah. and now they control all of Vietnam. Yeah. The same thing with original, the first uh, Delta storm. We should have gone farther and removed Saddam Hussein. And 12 years later, we got to do it again. And it's the same thing with Afghanistan. It feels like you always feel like, it's, I w I'm, at least in my opinion, I feel like if you're going to commit to something, commit to get the job completely done so you don't have to do it again. And, and so things won't revert to back to the same thing you after you leave. Yeah. And uh, those kinds of questions uh, will always arise. And uh, uh, the question... Uh, question with regard to uh, Afghanistan and, and, and Iraq is uh, the, it, the question always arose as to what exactly the mission should be, right? And uh, at least in Afghanistan, at, at first it was simply uh, uh, a mission to get the people that did the 9-11 attacks. But uh, it, it became mission creep again. I mean, we decided it, in order to stabilize the, the area, it might be best to try to do some state building there and uh, build on um, some uh, proto-political uh, uh, um, um, traditions that uh, Afghan tribes have. And ultimately, it did not work. So some people argue, well, uh, the mission would, would have been best. To, it would have been best to keep the mission relatively simple remove the threat, and then uh, let the Afghans decide what kind of state they want to build, but leave with a warning that if anything emanates from your territory again uh, like this, we will come in with overwhelming force and take care of it, and it will be your responsibility. We could have done that with Iraq, too, at least on the second go-around. 
We could have even done it on the first go around, but um, um, I think the humanitarian impulse to some extent intervenes with doing that. And we, we, we wish to improve the quality of life of the poor civilians that are stuck in these countries. And uh, uh, again, you can see that uh, in Korea and Vietnam as well. Um, but it doesn't always work. And sometimes the, uh, the, the perfect or the good can be the enemy of the good enough. And I think an example that really strikes me, it goes back to uh, the early uh, inter- the early days of our intervention in Vietnam. Um, I think one of the catastrophic mistakes that was made was during the Kennedy administration, they gave very strong indications to the military that they would not be uh, uh, averse to a coup to take down Diem in South South Vietnam. Um, Diem wasn't a perfect leader, but compared to the alternative North Vietnamese communists, he was substantially more liberal and had actually done some good work toward stabilizing South Vietnam and creating a, a secure environment for citizenry. But because of things he did that were not democratic and, and some, uh, moves that he made that were um, autocratic. Uh, The Kennedy administration decided that things would be better off without him. Well, when he was removed from power by that coup, which we basically approved of and uh, killed, ensued three years with approximately 17 different governments. And South South Vietnam was in chaos (laughs) until Thieu took over. And uh, as a result, we had to take on the burden of the fighting in that war. And up had, uh, in 1968, over 500,000 of our men over there doing the fighting. Um, now, it's very interesting, from 68 up to the end of the war in 73, those numbers were greatly reduced, and Nixon did a lot of work toward Vietnamization, is what he called it, having the Vietnamese take over the uh, control of that battle. And... Uh, it's arguable in that case that that more realistic goal, work with what you have, don't try to implant a Jeffersonian democracy, it's not going to happen in these parts of the world. Um, that's where you get success. And when you're worried about the well-being of the citizens in these places, even though these these uh, forms of government aren't ours, right? they're relatively stable and relatively secure, and better than the alternative. And uh, uh, that's that's a difficult thing for Americans to have to admit that sometimes you have to make alliances with what are essentially strong men uh, in cases like that, not only to create geostrategic stability, but also to give these people that are unfortunate enough to live in those countries a modicum of a decent life. Tough stuff to, for Americans to deal with. Uh, getting back to the uh, movie, um, there were two criticisms of it that I'm not sure if I... One, I can understand. Many people who were, were part of the Malaysian force, mm-hmm. they were angry at the film that it omitted them. Basically, you kind of see them coming at the very, very end. They're sort of the relief force. They're, 
coming in as the soldiers are marching back home to the base at the stadium. Yeah. And one of the Malaysian, a couple of the Malaysian soldiers did fought to die in that battle. Yeah. So I can understand that, even though it is an American, this is a Hollywood movie. The main focus is going to, unfortunately, going to be on the American forces. Yeah. They could have, I can understand that. But the other one I don't quite understand, or the criticism, they feel the film is racist, particularly towards the Somalians. And there's one read one negative review who brought up this racism and i he, he, it comes off as very immature i'm not going to give the guy the name because yeah. i don't want to start anything but it, it and this critic was white but at the end he starts using the n-word saying that it's a bunch of aryan white people shooting a bunch of n-words and I, oh, wow I, yeah. and i was shocked by that review it's like so you're saying that film is racist, but you're the white guy using the N word in your reviews. So yeah, and comes. you know, I, I didn't, I didn't notice any. Uh, I guess it's overtly. negative in the portrayal of Somalians that they were all part of this group. I'm guessing, but you see certain powerful scenes of civilians caught in the crossfire. Mainly, there's one carrying his like a baby who's yeah. been killed in the gunfight. So I don't think yeah. it's necessarily showing that all of them were on Adid's side. No, and you know, you, you have that portion of the film that has to do with the Mogadishu Mile, right? Mm-hmm. Where your, your uh, Malaysian forces and the other blue-helmeted UN guys are in those armored vehicles, and they don't have... They didn't have room to take all the troops in that they were evacuating, right? So there's this thing called the Mogadishu Mile where they had to march right next to those armored vehicles because that's the best they could do in terms of protecting them. Mm-hmm. But, you know, during that scene, what do you see? You see cheering Somalis. Yeah, yeah kids uh, as, you know, cheering yeah. on the soldiers. So, uh, yeah, I don't see that either. I mean, the the one quibble I would have with it is that uh, a lot of the actors that did play the Somalian characters don't look very Somali. That was also criticized. Um, the p- p- native Somalians said the accents from the people that were there were very off, and they said there was. I think Bowden even said that there was no Somalian represented for accuracy on the set of the film. Yeah, and, and you can see that. You can see that. And I, I guess the, uh, the interesting an interesting case is very early in the film. Um, the uh, uh, special operations forces forces take a, a man who ha- was basically the arms supplier for Adid, right? Uh, he's he's kind of going in a convoy, and they swoop down on him, take him, uh, take him prisoner, and he's kind of watching the operation as it goes on through the rest of the film. By the way, um, but it's interesting they actually interviewed this guy, and, and, and you know, take it for what it's worth. I mean, consider the source. Uh, he's an arms dealer that's willing to uh, uh, pr- provide arms to a guy that's basically committing genocide against his own Somal- uh, fellow Somalians. But at any rate, he says, yeah, I wasn't portrayed very accurately in that film. I- I'm wearing a lot of jewelry and-, and sunglasses and smoking big cigars. I didn't do any of that. I'm much more of a modest guy. <laughs> I mean, that's literally what he a said. A modest arms dealer. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. So. Um, you know, these are these are artifacts of making a film, I think. Yeah, and, it's and, never going to be 100% accurate. There's no. going to be some changes. Right. And, and yeah, I, I didn't see anything overtly racist. I, I just, I think they missed the mark there. Yeah. And like I said, that review came off as very immature to me and also borderline offensive. And if anything is racist, it would be that review more than the movie you're reviewing. Yeah, it sounds like it. I'm glad I didn't read that one. <laughs> 
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. There you can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and, their do- and the Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, for each episode I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at soundofcinema.automatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Saying so long, be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies. Philosophy at the Movies.